any single change is not going to transform your life overnight. It's really about the collection of changes, the system of habits that you build. And that's what ultimately starts to compound over time. I like to refer to habits as the compound interest of self-improvement. And the reason that I use that phrase is that the same way that money multiplies through compound interest, the effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them across time. I am Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, Mind Valley fans, and welcome back to the Mind Valley podcast. Our guest today is the brilliant James Clear. James wrote a book that came out in 2016 called Atomic Habits. This past week, it crossed a million in sales. And I picked up this book in around February or March this year. It has turned out to be one of the best, most fascinating books I've ever read. Now, let me tell you, Atomic Habits is a book all about habit hacking. It's about how to build the right habits in your life so you get better and better and better every day. But the way James approaches habits is so unique. It's so brilliant. You cannot help but win. He really shows you that in many ways, we are like human machines. And with the right input, the right habit hacks, you can, without a doubt, make your habits so effortless, so easy that you become the man or woman you always aspire to be. And there's an important reason why. James speaks of identity. He speaks about how when you change your identity, everything else in your life changes. And I got to say, this book is just absolutely astounding. It's no wonder it sold a million copies. Check it out, Atomic Habits. And please, let's give a big round of applause to James Clare. Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. Hey, James, welcome to the Mind hey, Valley Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, I know I do bring on a lot of authors, but I got to say, when I say a book is one of the best books I've read in a year, I really mean it. I never exaggerate to my audience. So, congratulations on such a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So, before we get started, now I know you're going to be sharing with us five steps that we can use to cultivate habits in the world. How would you explain that in layperson's terms? Well, in the book, I discuss what I call the four laws of behavior change, and those kind of give you a high level view of how to build a good habit or break a bad one. And then as a fifth step on top of that, what happens is that if you implement these four laws, the evidence of your behavior ends up accumulating. And so the fifth step is this kind of transition in identity that you feel. And the way that I would describe that, and I think the way I would describe the overall power of this framework is that every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you want to become. And so as you continue to accumulate votes and build up evidence, you start to shift your identity. If you study biology every Tuesday night for 20 minutes, you start to think, hey, maybe I'm a little bit studious. Or if you go to the gym every Tuesday for an hour, you start to think, oh, maybe I'm a fit person. Or if you practice guitar on Friday nights for 30 minutes, you think, ooh, maybe I'm a musician. And doing that once or twice does not change your identity. But as you do it more and more, you know, you turn around two months or six months or two years later and you start to think, huh, yeah, maybe part of my identity is being a musician or being a fit person or being studious. 
Beliefs and behavior are a two-way street. Your beliefs can impact your behavior and your behavior can impact your beliefs. But the reason that I like to start with habits, start with the behavior, is that if you let the behavior drive the way, you have evidence for being that kind of person. And so this is a little bit different than what we commonly say is like fake it till you make it or something like that. Now, I don't necessarily have anything wrong with fake it till you make it. It's just asking you to believe something positive about yourself. Well, James, I do want to share one way this idea from your book really helped me out. In your book, you draw these concentric circles, these circles spreading outwards. And you say that most people, if they want to say, build a habit of working out, they try to focus on, I think you said process, outcome, and identity. Are those the three? Right. You can kind of imagine this like the layers of an onion. So the outermost layer are your outcomes. This might be something like earning six figures this year or losing a certain amount of weight in the next six months. And this is like kind of where goals live, the outcomes that we want to achieve, the results we want to achieve. Then the next layer in are the processes that you follow, like the collection of habits that you build or the plan that you have. And this is a very typical process, right? People pick an outcome, the outer layer, and then they say, this is my plan for achieving it. But then there's a core, a deeper layer that is often overlooked, which I would refer to as our identity. And this is the set of beliefs that you have. The outer layer of outcomes is about what you want to achieve. The second layer of process is about how you will achieve that. But the deeper layer of identity is about who you see yourself as being, who you are. And most people start with the outcome, develop a process, and then sort of let the identity just come as like a natural side mm -hmm. effect. They don't even really think about it. They just think, oh, I want to be skinny. And if I lose weight and follow this program, then I'll be skinny. And by definition, then I'll be the person that I want to be. Right. Or, oh, I want to make more money. And here's my plan for building a business. And if I make more money, then I'll be happy with who I am. And my argument is to start with the opposite direction. Start at the core. Ask yourself, who is the type of person that could get the results I want? Who is the type mm -hmm. of person I'd like to be? And so, for example, if you would like to lose weight, you start to realize things like, huh, well, maybe the type of person who could lose weight is the type of person that doesn't miss workouts. And so your focus shifts from a certain number on the scale to how do I become the type of person who doesn't miss workouts? How do I develop that identity? How right. do I instill that type of habit? And then you trust. So now the, the arrow is pointed in the opposite direction. You say, who is the type of person I want to be? How can I build processes for being that type of person? And then you trust that the outcome will be the thing that comes naturally. So, so in other words, letting your identity arise, you let the outcome arise. So in other words, let's say you want to get fit. And most people focus on the outcome, which is I want to get more muscular and say drop five pounds, right? And that's okay, but you're saying you can go deeper and focus on the process, which is I'm going to go to the gym for 45 minutes, three times a week. But you're saying... I'm going to be the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And that's the identity, right? You can apply this in many different ways. Sometimes an identity is an actual label that we assign to ourselves. Like, for example, we all assign identities to ourselves based on the work we do. You might right. say, I'm a police officer, or I'm an entrepreneur, or I'm a teacher. But we all have multiple aspects of our identity. And so these identities, sometimes they can build you up, but they can also cut you down. So mm -hmm. people have identities like I'm bad at math or I'm terrible with directions or I'm bad at remembering people's names. We don't think of those as an identity in the same way that we have a label like police officer or teacher, mm -hmm. but they are. We ascribe those qualities to ourselves. Once we ascribe those qualities to ourselves and adopt that identity, we start to act in ways that reinforce that behavior. Mm -hmm. And so 
just as identities can hold us back, we can also use them to propel us forward. Right. So things like, I don't miss workouts. I'm the type of person that is reliable. I show up to meetings early, things like that. So when I read your book, the identity I took on is I have the ripped muscular body of an athlete. And every morning when I meditate, I would state that to myself. I have the ripped muscular body of an athlete for life. And what I found is that as I developed that identity and I wasn't always muscular, I wasn't always ripped. I had a big shift in my health three years ago, but as I developed that identity, going to the gym didn't become something I felt I had to do. It just became something I did. I would thirst for it. I would hunger for it. I would long to like get on those machines and just pump iron. It was bizarre because I used to hate that shit before, but I found that idea to be really, really, really powerful. I stopped obsessing about the measurement because it was my identity. I didn't care about the outcome. I did keep refining the process, but I just longed to do it. And I just don't miss gym sessions anymore. Ultimately, true behavior change is identity change. What I mean by that is once you've adopted a new identity, you're not even really pursuing behavior change anymore. You're just acting in alignment with the right. type of person you already see yourself to be. And so a lot of people feel like, oh, I need to motivate myself to meditate consistently. It would be great if I did that. But then there are other people, they identify, I'm a meditator. Mm -hmm. Once you look at yourself in that way, you're not even really pushing yourself to do it in the same way. You're just like, yeah, I'm in a meditation session as part of my normal day. And so this is just mm -hmm. what I do. So James, um, you were going to tell us about a five-step process to truly be able to master habits so we can shift our identity. So we just covered the first step, this idea that true behavior changes identity change. Now, in order to do that, and this is kind of the core piece of my argument, that it's not just about thinking about it. It's not just telling myself, oh, I'm a healthy person. It's instead casting votes for being that type of person with your habits, with your behavior, providing evidence of that. And in order to do that, in order to achieve that change, then we have kind of these four steps that you can follow. And I would define these four steps as a system or a playbook that you can follow for altering your behavior. And this is another one of the core ideas in Atomic Habits, which is that we do not rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our systems. You know, so often when we talk about behavior change, we tell people, set an ambitious goal, think bigger. If you had this vision, maybe if you really wanted it, then you would do it. And certainly goals are very useful. They're useful for setting a sense of direction, for developing clarity around what we want to work on. But if you want to actually achieve things, in many cases, you'll find that the winners and the losers in the same domain have the same goals. If you take, for example, a soccer league, every team has the goal of winning the championship. Or if you take a job application, 100 people apply. Every candidate has the goal of getting the job. The goal is the same for the winners and the losers. And so by definition, it cannot be the thing that makes the difference. And the thing that does make the difference is the system that they follow. And I would define the system as the collection of daily habits that people use for achieving their goals. So these four steps give you a system for altering, for building a good habit or breaking a bad one. So from a high level, each habit can be divided into four stages of cue, craving, response, and reward. And we have a law for adjusting each of those elements. The first law is to make it obvious. So you wanna make the cues of your good habits obvious, available, visible, easy to see. For the second law, you wanna make it attractive. So the more attractive and appealing a habit is, the more likely you are to perform it. For the third law, you wanna make it easy, easier and simpler, more convenient, frictionless habit is, the more likely it is to occur. And for the fourth and final law, you want to make it satisfying. 
So what I want to do now is I want to spend the next few minutes breaking down each of these and kind of giving an mm -hmm. example of how people can use them. So I'll pause there for a moment, but next we'll jump into breaking down how to make your habits obvious, that first law of behavior change. Okay. And that is the Q. Correct. So one of the biggest things that Mind Valley people are into is our Quest learning format. And so we have half a million students on Mind Valley, and they go through these 30, 60 day quest, 20 minutes a day. And at the end of 30 days to 60 days, they've upgraded and developed a super brain or transform their health or develop longevity skills or learn how to work out better or develop mindfulness skills. But we still find that many people are so excited about these programs, they go into it, but then they forget or they are unable to budget these 20 minutes a day of Mind Valley time where they go through their 20 minute lesson. So maybe we can use that as a context. How do we ensure that we're actually going through our mind valley time every single day for 20 minutes. So the first stage is about the cue and whether we're talking about mind valley time or a personal habit that you're trying to build, the process here for how a habit works is the same across the board. So the cue is something that gets your attention. So for example, if you walk into the kitchen, you see a plate of cookies on the counter. That's a visual cue that gets your attention and starts the habit of eating a cookie. Now, Cues are more likely to shape your behavior if they are obvious, if they catch your attention. And so there are a couple of different ways that we can organize this. So if we're talking about Mind Valley time, for example, I would imagine people have to log in to the platform mm -hmm. right. uh, in order to take the course. So one thing that you can do, do you have an app for that? All yes, that we do have an app. Thing. All right. So one thing that I did, for example, when I wanted to build a reading habit was I moved apps like Audible or Pocket to the front of the screen, right? They were actually in uh -huh. the home bar. So it was like phone, text, audible, and pocket. Those are the four that were in the home bar of my iPhone. What I was doing there was I was trying to make the habit of reading more obvious. Every time I opened the screen, the first four icons that were there were ones that were related to reading. The rest of my home screen was actually blank. I moved all the apps over to a second screen, so I had to swipe over. So mm -hmm. as soon as I opened the phone, the only thing I saw were things that reminded me of reading. Now, you could do the same thing with the Mind Valley app. If you're going through this quest piece, then making that cue more obvious, putting it in front of you somewhere where you're going to see it can lead to a reminder. Now, you don't only have to do that with the digital space. You can also do this kind of environment design with physical space. So I had a reader who would go to his guitar lesson on Friday night with his tutor, and then he got home from the lesson and he would put his guitar in a case in the closet and he would forget to practice all week. And then he'd go back to the lesson again. And his teacher would be like, you weren't practicing, you know, like what's going on? And so his new habit became when I come home from my guitar lesson, I take the guitar out of the case and I put it on a stand in the middle of the living room. And so he passes it 30 times a day. And now he's more likely to pick it up and nice. practice throughout the week. And so whether you're talking about digital environment or physical space, the idea is to make the cues of your good habits obvious. And mm -hmm. I think we can just summarize this by saying, if you want a habit to be a big part of your life, make the cue a big part of your environment. You know, so often we say things are important to us but then we tuck them away in the closet or we don't see that they're not sitting on our desk at work or on the kitchen counter at home. And the truth is humans opt for the path of least resistance so often. And so like make that path of least resistance, the good habit, make it the thing that's in front of you all the time. And so that element of environment design is a great way to make habits obvious and shape your behavior. I'll give you one more example. When I wanted to start a flossing habit, I realized that I would brush my teeth twice a day, but I would only floss every now and then. And one of the problems was that the floss was hidden away in a drawer in the bathroom. I just wouldn't see it. It was like out of sight, out of mind. I wouldn't think about it. 
And so I bought a little bowl and I put it right next to my toothbrush. And now I brush my teeth, put the toothbrush down, pick the floss up out of the bowl. And that was pretty much all I need to do. And now I floss my teeth twice a day, which I'm told is excessive. <laughs> so, but it basically was just an environment design shift, right? That's all it took. So for many habits, making them obvious leads to a change in behavior. Also, this is probably a good point for me to pause and say, I went through those four stages, make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. And that's how you build a good habit. But if you want to break a bad habit, you just invert each of those steps. So in this example, we want to make it obvious for the cues of your good habits. But let's take a bad habit like watching too much television. Well, if you walk into any living room, where do all the couches and chairs face? Right, They right. face the TV. Right. So it's like, what is this room designed to get you to do? And so you can take a variety of steps here. You could like turn a chair away and have it face a coffee table with a book on it. You could put the TV inside a wall unit or a cabinet so that it's behind doors. Mm -hmm. You're less likely to see it. You could even unplug the TV after each use and then only plug it back in if you can say the name of the show that you want to watch. So you're not allowed to just like turn it on mindlessly right. and find something. But you get the idea. The idea is that you want to make the cues of your good habits obvious and your bad habits invisible. So those are brilliant ideas. So in other words, take the Mind Valley app, move it to the front of your smartphone, the front screen. So that itself is a powerful tip. Now, the second thing is the craving. Right. How do we work with so, the concept of craving? I use the word craving. And sometimes we think about cravings as like, I have a craving for a donut or a craving right. for a cigarette. You know, like we think about kind of this wave of desire. And that is true. There are some habits that you do experience as like real visceral craving. But every behavior in life, even little ones that you don't even think about, like picking up a glass of water or something, you have some level of craving, some level of motivation to do that task. And so there's some level of motivation behind every action. And I think the real way to think about this, the more scientific way, is a craving is actually a prediction that something will benefit you. It will help you get what you want. So something as simple as pressing the power button on the remote control. You predict, if I press this button, the TV will turn on, and then I'll be able to watch what I want to watch. And so it's actually that prediction that motivates you. And there's actually a very powerful mental shift that can happen here if you understand how this works. So quick example, let's say you walk into your kitchen in the morning and you see a loaf of bread on the counter and you think, oh, I'll make some toast for breakfast. And so you pull out a piece of bread and you put it in the toaster and so on. Now, the prediction you were making there was that toast is favorable. It's enjoyable. If I make this, then I'll have some breakfast. But then let's say that you read a book that convinces you that carbs are the devil and mm. grain is terrible. And now the next morning you walk into the kitchen and the loaf of bread is still there. So it's the same cue. Remember, that's the first step, cue and then craving. Same visual cue. But now you have a different prediction that you're making. Now you see bread and you predict, oh, grain is bad for me. I should avoid carbs, etc. So because the prediction changes, the response changes, the action changes. Now you don't make toast. Now maybe you throw the loaf of bread out or something. And this type of thing happens all the time where people, maybe they read a book or they have a conversation that gives them a new way to interpret the old experiences in their life. That gives them a new way to see the world. And in many ways, breaking bad habits in particular is a process of learning to tell ourselves a new story about the things in our life, learning to tell ourselves a new prediction for the same things that we've always experienced. Craving phase is a very important part of that process. All right, I want to give you a practical example for each of these four. So let me give you one practical example of how to implement this and make habits more attractive. Mm -hmm. So let's say that tonight you go to bed and you think, okay, tomorrow's going to be the day. I'm going to wake up and I'm going to go for a run at 6 a.m. So you set your alarm. 
6 a.m. rolls around and your bed is warm. It's cold outside. You're like, ah, just press news and, you know, forget it. But if you rewind the clock and you come back to today and you say, all right, tomorrow's going to be the day. I'm going to go for a run. And you text a friend and you say, hey, can we meet at the park at 630? Well, now 6 a.m. rolls around and your bed is still warm and it's still cold outside. But if you don't get up and go for a run, you're suddenly a jerk because you leave your friend at the park. Right. And so scientists refer to that as a commitment device. And a commitment device is any choice that you make in the present that locks in your behavior in the future. So in the present, I choose, I'll text my friend and meet up at the park tomorrow. And in the future, when I wake up in the morning, now suddenly there's a cost to the behavior. It locked in my future behavior. And this is the second law of behavior change. It simultaneously made it more attractive, get up and go for a run, and less attractive to stay in bed and sleep in. So a commitment device is a form of craving, of establishing a craving. Yeah, establishing a craving. That's an interesting way to phrase it. So yes, it's a way of kind of like establishing a future craving. I make this choice now, and I know that I'm going to crave getting up in the morning. So running aside, if we want to make sure that people who are using our app are logging in for 20 minutes a day at a regular scheduled time, let's say in the morning or before going to bed, how would we create a craving for that? Well, so there are a couple things you could do. One, for example, I had somebody who did a similar thing with their writing habit. So they wanted to write 500 words a day. But let's say in this example, you want to log in and use the Mind Valley app for mm -hmm. 20 minutes. What you could do is when you wake up in the morning, you get a little post-it note and you write, log into Mind Valley for 20 minutes or whatever it is. You close your bedroom door and then you put the post-it note on that door. Then you go off and do your day. And the rule is you're not allowed to open the door until you've done that. So you're not allowed to go back into your bedroom right. and go to sleep until that's done. So you have a commitment device that's forcing you to get that done at some point throughout the day. Can a craving also be something that we really love doing and we attach it to that behavior? So for example, I love coffee in the morning. Can I tell myself that I am going to make a cup of coffee and drink that as I'm spending my 20 minutes on Mind Valley? Would that yes. work too? So this is a great strategy. So you basically are like linking something you love with something that you want to do. And if you get really good at this, there's an interesting example of this in a book called The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin. He was a martial artist and he talked about his like pre-competition routine that he would go through. And he eventually started compressing this down from a routine that took him 20 minutes to 10 minutes to five minutes to two minutes to 30 seconds. And so he had this 30 second routine that he would do. And it was like a switch in his mind where it just immediately was like, hey, game mode, it's time to compete, it's time to perform. And you can do something similar with the habits that you're trying to build. So a lot of people may find that, let's say, take journaling, for example, it's not something that right now they have an emotional attachment to. It's like, oh, I would like to journal, but I don't have that habit and I don't really feel strongly about it. But you could take something that you love, like, say, one of your favorite songs and mm -hmm. drinking a nice cup of coffee in the morning. And so you wake up in the morning, you put the song on, you brew the cup of coffee, right. and then you sit down and write your journal entry. And suddenly you're like taking all these positive emotions that are associated with things you already love and starting to associate them with the new habit. You know, that's a remarkable thing that you just said. So I recently figured out how to quadruple my writing output. I have a manuscript due in a few weeks and I was like so pushing back on this book. And then I figured out the hack and it was exactly what you said. I'd wake up at 6 a.m., play my favorite Spotify playlist with my cup of coffee. And I love that feeling, Spotify mm. plus coffee. And it would put me straight in the zone to writing. I stopped missing my writing hour. Your brain doesn't quite know to distinguish it. It knows like... <laughs> um 
I feel really good right now. And then right. you start learning. I'm feeling really good while I'm writing. And yeah. then you start to associate that with the experience. There was actually a guy I came across when I was researching the book who would do a similar thing to you. He went to the library and he put his headphones on and then write. And they have his favorite playlist going. And one day he realized that he had forgot to press play on the music. He just put his headphones <laughs> on and began writing. And that was enough of a signal that he fell into the habit automatically. So you have Q craving. Now what's response? So the craving drives the response. The response is just the action that you take. So doing one push up, meditating for one minute, taking a bite of the donut, whatever it is. So in other words, the response here would be writing or the response here would be spending your 20 minutes on the app. Correct. And the key with this is to make the action as simple as possible. So take writing, for example. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who his writing habit is he writes one sentence every day. He makes it as low friction as possible. Now, there are many days when he feels really good and he writes a page or three pages or five pages. But even on the bad days, he can always write one sentence. There's a certain power to this, especially in the beginning. Sometimes I'll tell people this. I'll say, you know, start really small. And so the recommendation I give is to use what I call the two minute rule. The two minute rule says take whatever habit you're trying to build and scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So writing one sentence, reading 40 books a year becomes read one page, doing yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. And people sometimes like to resist that because they think, well, okay, I get what you're saying, but the real goal is to do the yoga workout. I know I'm not actually just trying to take my yoga mat out. So if I know that it's like this mental trick and I know it's a trick, like why would I fall for it basically? And I understand why people feel that way. But my response would be, if you feel like that, then I would encourage you for the first week or maybe the first month to actually force yourself to stop after two minutes. So, you know, roll the yoga mat out, do one pose, roll it back up, put it away. Put on your running shoes, walk out the door, lock the door, turn back around, walk inside. And it sounds silly, but I have this reader who he ended up losing over 100 pounds. And for the first six weeks, he went to the gym and he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would mm. get in the car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds ridiculous, right? It sounds silly. But what you realize is that he was mastering the art of showing up. He was becoming the type of person that went to the gym four days a week. And this, I think, is a very deep truth about habits that often gets overlooked, which is that a habit must be established before it can be improved. It has to become the standard in your life before you can optimize and expand from right. there. And so often we're focused on finding the perfect business idea, the best workout program, the ideal diet plan. We're so focused on optimizing that we don't give ourselves permission to show up, even if it's just in a small way. But if you don't show up consistently, there's no raw material to optimize. There's nothing there to expand or improve. And so the two-minute rule helps you master the art of showing up and make sure that you actually have something to build on rather than just a dream or a theory or a hope of some perfect plan that you'll implement at some point. That's amazing. And I remember that story from your book. And, you know, that's one of the things I loved about the book, all the beautiful stories that you share. Okay, so we have the cue, the craving, the response. And the final step you said is the reward. And the reward right. is make it satisfying. So the fourth law is make it satisfying. And the reason is that if a behavior is satisfying, if it's enjoyable, if it's pleasurable, then you're more likely to repeat it. Now, not every behavior in life is satisfying, right? Sometimes we have consequences. Sometimes things are just kind of neutral. But if a behavior is not satisfying, if it's not enjoyable, at least in some way, then your brain kind of learns, well, why would I repeat that again? So 
Here's the real challenge when it comes to building good habits and breaking bad ones. The real challenge is that pretty much every behavior in life produces multiple outcomes. And so you can think of this as like an immediate outcome and an ultimate outcome. So for bad habits, the immediate outcome is often favorable. Like what's the immediate outcome of eating a donut? It's kind of great. It's sweet, sugary, tastes good. It's only the ultimate outcome. If you continue to eat donuts for a month or two months or a year, that's unfavorable. With good habits, it's often the reverse. The immediate outcome is kind of unfavorable. Like the immediate outcome, when people go to the gym for the first week, it's kind of like my body's sore. I don't see any change in the mirror. The scale hasn't mm-hmm. really moved. It's only if you continue working out for two months or six months or a year that you get to the favorable ultimate outcome. And so a lot of the battle of building good habits and breaking bad ones is about kind of managing this misalignment between the immediate and the ultimate. And you kind of have this valley of death in the beginning. You know, you're like showing up. I've been writing consistently for 17 days, but my book still isn't finished yet. Or I've been going to the gym for 24 days this month, but I still don't see a change in my body. And so you need something that is satisfying in the moment. And so this is the key of the fourth law of behavior change. It's not just make it satisfying. It's finding ways to make it immediately satisfying. And the ultimate version of this, the ultimate version of immediate satisfaction is a reinforcement of your desired identity. So it comes back to that first step we were talking about. You go to the gym and you can literally feel it in the middle, in the middle of doing a set of squats. You're like, each rep is a reinforcement of, hey, I'm the type of person that doesn't miss workouts. How do I know that? Because I'm literally working out right now. And eventually, once you assign that identity to yourself, you really feel that powerfully. You feel like, yeah, I just want to be here because this is who I am. Can the reward also be a personal reward? Like, for example, I think it was your book which made me think of this idea. After finishing my gym or finishing my Mind Valley time, I reward myself with my favorite breakfast, which is an omelet. Yes. So this is what psychologists refer to as reinforcement. And a reinforcement is like an external reward that kind of reinforces the internal reward or identity they're trying to. And I think the real key here, it could be getting your favorite breakfast after doing Mind Valley work. It could Mm -hmm. be, you know, a student getting paid $5 for each high mark that they get in school. As an adult, it's you get a paycheck every two weeks or every month for the work that you do. So we have all kinds of external rewards that motivate us to continue doing certain habits. But the key is that you want the external reward to be aligned with the internal identity you're trying to build. If your reward for going to the gym is that you get a bowl of ice cream, well, now you're kind of casting (laughs) votes for conflicting identities, right? So there are some ways that you can do this. So let's say, for example, if I have a perfect week and I don't miss any workouts, then my reward is that I get to take a bubble bath on the weekend. Both of those are kind of like casting votes for taking care of your body. And I see what you mean. You're reinforcing that identity. Right. Amazing. Or let's say uh, a lot of people have like finance and budgeting habits. And so you could say, oh, if I hit my budget goals for this month, then I could buy a leather jacket. But that kind of is like casting a vote against it. Right. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, I was saying I'm a saver, but now I'm also doing something as a spender. Okay. So yeah, not necessarily anything wrong with that. Let's do a quick recap. So the first thing is true behavior change is identity change. We want to seek to shift our identity of who we are. And that's the primary way, the best way to do it, rather than starting with fixing a process or fixing an outcome. And then number two is a system is a collection of daily habits. And the way you hack a habit is through Q, which is make it obvious, craving, 
which is make it attractive. For example, starting your writing or your mind valley time with a cup of coffee or a Spotify playlist response, which is make it easy, you know, doing it as itself to response. And you want to make it as easy as possible. For example, you got the idea of going to the gym for just five minutes. And then finally, the reward. This is where you reward yourself with recognizing that you are living up to your new identity. I'm the fit gym going person, or you reward yourself with say a really good breakfast. So that's pillar one and pillar two. Now, you said there were five things you were going to share? Yes. So we have identity, the first piece, right? We've got these four laws of behavior change. That's two, three, four, and five. The holy grail of habit change is not making a single 1% improvement. It's making a thousand of them. It's trying to find all these little ways to get 1% better each day and then layering those on top of each other. So it's not just about putting a book on your pillow so that you can read more when you climb in bed at night or putting the floss in a bowl, like I mentioned earlier, and making that easy to floss. It's not just about these little changes because any single change is not going to transform your life overnight. It's really about the collection of changes, the system of habits that you build. And that's what ultimately starts to compound over time. I like to refer to habits as the compound interest of self-improvement. And the reason that I use that phrase is that the same way that money multiplies through compound interest, the effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them across time. This is one of the challenges of habits, both good and bad ones, is that bad habits, they're easy to dismiss on any given day. And doing something that's 1% better doesn't feel like a very significant choice on any given day. You could say, what is the difference between eating a burger and fries for lunch or eating a salad? Well, not much on any given day. You know, your body looks basically the same. Scale hasn't really changed. It's only when you continue to repeat those habits for two or five or 10 years that you look back and you're like, oh, wow, those really do add up. You know, those mm-hmm. choices really do compound. And so I think that ultimately what we're looking to build here, if you want to shape this new identity, if you want to utilize these four laws of behavior change, then the ultimate strategy is to build a collection of habits that move you in the direction of your desired identity. It's not just about following a specific diet. It's also about building the mental health habits that fit with that and so on. So that's really about many 1% changes accumulating over time even though any individual change seems almost insignificant. I see. That's beautifully said. So thank you so much, James. This was a really beautiful overview. So again, to recap, first thing to understand is true behavior change is identity change. And then to understand the four-step process, cue, craving, response, reward. You also spoke about how the essence is to get 1% better each day and to layer that on top of each other. And that leads to you just making remarkable shifts in your life. Now, the final question I wanted to ask you, and I know you cover this in your brilliant book, but is how do we stay consistent? How do we keep this process going day after day? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, there are kind of like two main challenges with habits. The first challenge is getting started. And a lot of the strategies that we've just covered help you get started. You know, things like making it really easy with the two-minute rule or making the cues more obvious or so on. Those are small changes that you can make that improve the odds that you'll start today. But we have a second problem, which is sticking with it and maintaining consistency. So there's, there's getting started and there's sticking with it. And sticking with it, I think there are two things that I'd like to cover here. So the first is that the main thing that makes sure that you stick with a habit is that you maintain the motivation to continue doing it. And there are certain strategies that you can use, like making the habit small and so on, that reduce the amount of motivation that you need. But ultimately, the process of mastery requires you to get comfortable with boredom. And what I mean by that is that the more that you do something, the more routine it becomes. 
And the more routine it becomes, the more the outcome or the process is expected, which means it doesn't surprise you anymore. Novelty mm -hmm. is decreased. And when novelty and surprise are decreased, it becomes easier to get bored with it. It's like, hey, I've done this a thousand times. And then you start looking for new solutions. And you actually see this pattern a lot with people when they try to make changes. They'll do something for a few weeks and then they start looking around for the next like better idea, the new thing. So they just like jump from program to program or strategy to strategy. Right. Mastery, though, requires you to stay focused. It requires you to continue to put the reps in even once it's become kind of consistent or kind of reliable, once you understand how the process works. And so there are a couple strategies you can use here. The first one is something that I refer to as the Goldilocks rule. The Goldilocks rule says that humans experience peak levels of motivation when they work on tasks of just manageable difficulty. So not too hard, not too easy, just right. One way to think about this, imagine you're playing tennis. Now, if you play against a professional like Roger Federer or Serena Williams, well, it might be cool for a few minutes, but it's going to get boring pretty quickly because you're going to lose every point. Meanwhile, if you play against, like, say, a four-year-old, well, again, it might be cute for a few minutes, but if you're trying to play a serious match, it's going to get boring because you're going to win every point. But if you play against someone who's roughly your equal, they win a few points, you win a few points, you have a chance to win, but only if you really try, then suddenly that's very motivating. You're on the cusp of your ability. You know that you have the chance to succeed, but only if you really put effort in. And so what you're looking to do when you graduate your habits as you work through them and try to remain consistent with them is just kind of nudge the perimeter, the habit out just a little bit so that you're challenged just enough to stay interested, but you are within the bounds of your ability enough to succeed. And so imagine that when you start a running habit, at first, you just start by putting your shoes on and getting out the door four days a week. And that's just mastering the art of showing up. And then the next couple of weeks, you have your shoes on, you get out the door and you just go for a run around like the block, literally around your apartment or your house. And then you start to nudge it out even more. And pretty soon you're running for five blocks and 10 blocks and so on. So the idea here is just to continue to nudge that perimeter out and stay on the edge of your ability. So that's the first piece. But the second and perhaps the ultimately most powerful way to get a habit to stick is with the social environment. We've talked a lot about physical environment, the things on your phone, the items on your desk and counter and so on. But one of the deepest reasons why habits stick is because we are a part of a tribe where that habit is normal. And this, I think, is the punchline, which is you want to join groups, join communities, join tribes where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. If you hang out with a bunch of jazz musicians playing music four nights a week, sounds like a very normal habit to build because that's what everybody else is doing. If you move into a new community, and you start trimming your hedges and mowing your lawn and taking care of things because you don't want to be the neighbor who's judged, right? You build these habits because they're socially reinforced. If you go to a job interview, you wear a dress or a suit and a tie or something nice. There's no reason you have to wear that. You could wear a bathing suit, but it would be weird because it would violate the social norms. And so those social expectations shape so many of our habits, the habits of how we dress, how we act, the things that we practice, the things that seem normal to us. So you want to join a group where your desired behavior is the normal. You know, that was so important to me when I started getting to the habit of healthy eating and the habit of consistent weight training and exercise. I made sure everyone in my company got into those same habits. And so now people in the company run Spartan races together. We help each other out in the gym. I showed up at work the other day and someone was making a green smoothie, made one for me as well. And so we all keep each other 
in the zone and we all keep each other dedicated to our habits. The only difficult part is sometimes someone might change jobs or go to another company and all of a sudden their health goes to hell because they suddenly mm -hmm. go to an environment where they are no longer with everyone who's eating healthy and working out regularly. But that's such a powerful idea. I guess it helps when we are taking on a habit, especially a health or fitness habit or a learning habit to encourage the entire family or the entire company to join. Even if you can't do that, because sometimes it's very hard, right? People change jobs or your family doesn't support the habit that you're trying to build. It's very powerful to have what I guess we could call like a sacred space, somewhere you can mm -hmm. go for at least an hour where even if you're not being uplifted by the people around you, you're not being held back right. by them either. So if you want to do yoga and the rest of your family doesn't care about that, then you can go to a yoga studio where you're surrounded by exactly. people who do want to do that right. for at least right. an hour. Right. Or and if you want to work on a book and you are distracted at home all the time and the rest of the people that are around you, your roommates or your family or whatever, don't support that goal, then you can find a new coffee shop that you don't have any habits associated with so far. And this becomes the writing coffee shop. You walk right. in, you turn your phone off, you spend 20 minutes there, you're done. And that's like your safe space for that habit. I think it's important to have spaces where habits can kind of grow and blossom where they're supported or at the very least where they're not conflicted. And you know, um, it's hard enough to show up and do the work. And you know, for all of you listening who are on Mind Valley Quest, this is why every quest comes with an online community where you can go and participate. And some of our communities have, I think the record is 15,000 members. And wow. you know that you're going to be surrounded by like minded individuals, whether it's on Wildfit or Lifebook or Superbrain or Emily Fletcher's M Word or any of the other legendary Mind Valley programs. And that's really one of the reasons why these programs are so transformative. So thank you so much, James. And for all of you listening, I really want to encourage you to check out jamesclear.com, especially when you go to jamesclear.com, just keep this in mind. His book is one of the best books I read this year. And it's a book that has completely changed the way I approach my morning. But when you go to jamesclear.com, not only should you check out the book, but check out the articles section. James is a brilliant writer. His articles, and I'm just reading you some of the topics right now. The ultimate productivity hack is saying no. The ultimate habit tracking guide, why and how to track your habits. The surprising benefit of journaling one sentence every day. His writing is freaking brilliant. If there's one blog I want to get you guys really hooked on, it's jamesclear.com. So definitely bookmark it, go check it out. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and leave us a review, share it with your friends. And in the review, mention James Clear, mention what you learned from him, what you liked about him, because I know he's going to really appreciate that. And don't forget to check out once again, jamesclear.com and the book Atomic Habits. James, thank you so much for joining us on Mind Valley. Thank you. Really appreciate it. And I'll see you all next week. I'm Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, Take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body, your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest 
a life that you once thought beyond your dreams. When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.